Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kevin Bupp. He is an expert on real estate uh, in general and specifically mobile homes as a way to invest and have uh, regular income to you as an investor. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Jordan, thanks for having me. So let's just start with your uh, history and your background and how that ended up going into mobile home parts is what you think is the best place to invest. Sure, sure. Yes, it, it's definitely it's a it's a unique asset class, and so I, I, guess, I guess a little bit of a background will probably be very uh, uh, very good for your listeners to hear. Um, so I, I I've you know to tell you the truth, Jordan, I've never had a real job, so I got I guess I got kind of lucky, um, although I didn't really know it at the time. But um, I was a str- I, I struggled in school, high school, and uh, went off to community college. Didn't really want to waste my parents' money by going off to a university. St- just because I just didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. And so, but uh, at the age of 19, I got somewhat lucky and um, someone that maybe saw uh, a lack of something in me, I'm not sure, but someone about 20 years my senior introduced me to real estate. And um, so it took me underneath their wing and um, introduced me to the business, a business I knew nothing about at that point in time. Came from a very blue collar family and um, just, you know, a family that just worked really hard each and every day, worked towards the day of retirement really is all they did and um, didn't really talk about passive income or, you know, outside investments other than, you know, the typical 401k and things of that nature. And so um, I dove in at the age of 19 and uh, took about a year or so, started buying um, uh, investment properties, single family homes primarily, and um, really grabbed a hold of it and uh, ran ran with it um, uh, for a number of years, buying hundreds of single family homes and hundreds of apartment units. And uh, that, that really led me up to 2008. I mean, I, I built quite a large portfolio um, down here in Southwest Florida. Um, leading up to 2007, 2008 financial crisis and uh, lost a lot of it. Uh, just really, really trying times down here. And so um, really what led me to mobile home parks is just a reflection back on my business, Jordan. Um, I, I After the, the crash happened, I lost pretty much 99% of what I had built over those years. And I looked back to see what really worked and what didn't work in my real estate business. And what didn't work were the single-family home investments. Those those were very inefficient to manage, and um, just didn't really have the the cash flow um, and the scalability that multifamily units did. And so, you know, I saw that the part of my business that really worked was the multifamily apartments. The part that didn't work was the single-family homes. Although a lot of my business was really more, it was more weighted on the single family side. And I realized that if I was going to rebuild myself and get back into this game um, after losing everything, that it needed to be in the multifamily side. I need to be able to scale a lot faster. I didn't have another, you know, nine, 10 years to do this all over again. I went, I needed to start over fast because I really didn't have much anymore. And um, I, I was going around inter- uh, having lunch and having conversations with very successful people that were still in the business, just trying to educate myself on the multifamily side, trying to figure out how I could do it in a much bigger way than what I had already. And um, someone introduced me to a gentleman that I didn't know, um, didn't know prior to the conversation with him or prior to my lunch with him, um, but he was in the mobile home park space. Uh, He had been in the finance side for 30 years, retired, and started buying mobile home and RV parks here in Florida. And he was about eight years into that, into that endeavor of, of being an investor versus a um, an employee at a bank, and he was doing really well. And I had lunch with him one day, and it's about a two-hour-long lunch. And I left that lunch with the new focus of mobile home parks uh, versus apartment buildings. And that was back in 2010. And uh, from that point forward, I made a decision that I was at least going to give it six months or so um, 
to determine whether or not that was going to be my new focus uh, versus apartment buildings. And so that, that brought me up to where I am today. So today, I've been doing it now for, uh, you know, since we bought our first park, it's been about five years. And uh, that's all we focus in. So that's kind of what led me down the path of mobile home parks. I mean, it was, a, it was an asset class I knew nothing about. I mean, I knew what they were. But I never had really dug into it as a form of an investment until that lunch that one day. There was multiple things during that discussion with – his name was Randy. Uh, multiple things during that discussion with Randy that just really piqued my interest and just got me very interested in this asset class. And so today, um, we own parks in seven different states, soon to be nine. And um, this is all we do. Very good. Let's just understand first what happened in 2008 – did you have a lot of leverage on the homes or just because the value of the homes went down didn't mean you had to lose them? Why did you lose yeah. so much of your property in 2008? You know, Southwest Florida, at least where we had a lot of properties, I mean, number one, Southwest Florida was kind of ground zero. But um, to answer your question more directly, no, we actually had very minimal leverage on our properties, which is the, kind of the ironic thing. Um, we were very tried in our methods of, you know, we never leveraged more than 65 or 70 percent of our properties. And so what happened really, here's, there's, there's two really big things that happened. Number one, we lost all the value. I mean, within a matter of 12 months, you know, what looked great on paper now is literally upside down, even with 35 and 40% equity stakes in these properties. I mean, they lost more than that. Some of them lost, some of these areas, they lost 50 and 60% of what the top market value was. And so that was the first thing. So on paper now, you know, obviously the equity is gone, but, you know, in our minds, you should still be able to cash flow, right? You should at least break even, pay your debt. Well, what happened is down here, there was a, there was a lot of spec builders building rooftops for this phantom population. I mean, this is back when literally a contract would be flipped five times before the home was even finished. I mean, there was there's lots of land in Southwest Florida and there were rooftops everywhere, as far as the eye could see, that were not occupied. And so when the music stopped, in a couple of these areas where we had a lot of our residential homes, there was a lot of these spec-built homes, you know, brand new three two twos. I mean, just a ton of them. And the big thing that 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 really brought us down was these builders. They were trying to co- cover the construction loans. They had these they had debt payments to make on the construction loans. They started renting these properties, the ones that were actually finished. And they really they did like a targeted marketing campaign to you know a certain radius in that area to all the other people that were in single family they, they dwellings. They took away your renters. You're saying absolutely they did, and um and we we saw like a. You're close to an 18% loss of occupancy in like six or seven months. And I mean, that was, we were basically breaking even. I mean, we were making a little bit of money on our single family homes at that point, and it just went away. I mean, it literally, that was the nail, the last nail in the call. So you defaulted on those homes when your renters left? You defaulted on the homes? We had to. I mean, it was, we own, I own about 100, I owned 122 in my portfolio, and I was partnered with a group that owned over 600 homes. And so, those those debt payments every month, um, you know, we have that kind of occupancy hit. It came to the point where instead of collecting checks each month, we were writing pretty fat checks out of our per, you know out of our company bank account, which directly came out of our personal account, and uh, it wasn't sustainable. And no one knew how long it was going to last. And so I just, we made the I made the executive decision, at least with my portion of the portfolio, I made the executive decision that it had to be it, it was a strategic default. Um, we probably could have hung on for a while, but now I look back, I'm glad I didn't because it lasted way longer than what anyone anticipated it lasting. So, so didn't I that had about hurt two your years credit? of staying power. When yeah, you absolutely had all the defaults, did. did that hurt your credit badly? Absolutely. How, that allowed, sure did. how did you able to recover from that to get back into buying mobile homes if your credit was ruined from so many defaults? 
Yeah, it, it took a lot of time. Um, I worked with as many lenders as I could. Um, there was a lot of lenders at that point in time that weren't willing to work with me. Um, you know, years down the road, they've got a little bit more flexible with their willingness to um, understand the situation and work with their borrowers. But yeah, I mean, and so now we're we're literally ten years later. I mean, it's been a long. It's funny. I, I think about this, and it it doesn't seem like ten years has passed. But I mean, really, uh, up until about two and a half years ago, I still had some some challenges with my personal credit. And so time, really time healed it. I worked with as many lenders as I could. Uh, we did short sales. Um, we did deed and lose. You know, uh, I had a lot of private investors as well. I tried to work with them as best I could. I mean, I didn't run from my problems. And so I, I, I took them face head, you know, or took them head on and tried to do my best. And, uh, but I still walked away with, uh, with very scarred credit. And so just time is healing, you know, you know, and, and literally I can say today pretty proudly, I do have like a, I don't know, about a 730 credit score. So I think it's back, it's bounced back finally, but it took a lot of time to do that. So it is possible for people to recover because you weren't the only one. Lots of people were walking away from not as investors, yeah. all as individuals from their mortgages doing so-called strategic defaults as well. But you're saying you know, it is possible to recover from that. You know, I think the one thing that helped me out a lot is, uh, Jordan, I never, I never default on any consumer debt. So I had a lot of credit cards. You know, I had a lot of lines of credit and things of that nature. I never defaulted on consumer debt. So the only thing I ever defaulted on were these mortgages, which obviously had a, a very significant impact. But I had some positive things that I never let go of and that I continued to use and continued to pay on. Now, a lot of my credit lines got shrunk down to next to nothing. Like a lot of my credit card companies, even though I never defaulted on them, they started cutting me off. And so I had about three or four that were left. That stuck with me, you know. They gave me, you know, they they basically lowered my credit limit to next to nothing, but I still use use them, and so it allowed me to continue that established credit and um and and rebuild. I think sooner than what what I would have if I would have defaulted on everything altogether, like a lot of people did. Why did the real estate market eventually uh, recover? I mean, it's where you are in Southwest Florida, other places, Las Vegas and Phoenix that were also very depressed, have come back really strong. What? made the real estate market turn around? What made them turn around? I mean, I, I think time. I mean, if you look back at historical cycles, a lot of, it, it's just a matter of time. You know, there's a lot of, there was a lot of inventory that has to get bought up, right? I mean, I think that's a big part of it. Um, and you got all this excess inventory that was being built, but a lot of the people that were buying these homes that were being built were subprime borrowers. So we know that the implosion happened back in 2007, 2008. Most of it was attributed to subprime mortgages. And so it just was a matter of time until the, this, this excess inventory was taken off the market. I mean, that's really what it was. It was just time that healed it all. And unfortunately, Southwest Florida, same with like Las Vegas, same with like Phoenix, all those markets, kind of the same thing happening that was here. There was just spec builders building out the woodwork for a population that wasn't necessarily there, or it was a population that were subprime buyers that Within a matter, of, you know, within a matter of months, we're no longer buyers, and so it so, just took a matter of time until regular buyers had come in and uh, actually qualify for this inventory. Now, some would say that subprime is starting to come back, and lenders, even though you've got Dodd Frank, lenders have become more aggressive. Do you see another cycle building right now that is similar to what happened ten years ago? Yeah, it's interesting, Jordan. I, you know, I I run a podcast, weekly podcast, and I ask the same question to. Um, guys that I would consider way smarter than myself that have been through multiple cycles. And uh, it, it's, <laughs> you know, I, I do see that. I see that lenders are getting a little bit more lenient with with their lending qualifications and they're starting to make credit to people that have a little bit shakier, you know, shakier credit or might have a collection here or there, might have a, you know, a blip on their credit history. And 
I'm not sure that it's building like it was, like a correction is building for the same reasons that it was, you know, back in 2007, 2008. Um, but I, I do see that now that I look back and, and actually review history, it just seems like this is it's, it's kind of how things happen, right? I mean, banks kind of pull back their strings a little bit, get a little tighter, get a little bit more restricted on their lending. And then as people start spending money, everyone thinks the economy is doing great again. Banks are like, well, gosh, well, there's other banks making this loan over here. So we're going to lose those customers if we don't loosen up our lending restrictions a little bit. And so everyone starts loosening up their lending restrictions, starts making loans to less qualified individuals. And obviously, long, down the road, that probably creates more defaults. And But I'm not sure that that's really building up to something that we experienced in 2007, 2008. Although I, I, some things that I'm seeing out here, I'll tell you what I'm seeing. One of the things that I, I think will happen is in the multifamily space, that is a space that is, it's kind of the, it's the flavor of the, of the decade. Um, there's a lot of starts, you know, there was um, a, a lot of a lag from things that weren't coming out of the ground. Now there's a lot of new projects coming out of the ground and there's some markets that are going to get saturated with inventory and it's already mm-hmm. happening in some larger MSAs. And, you know, I'm looking, I look at projections. I don't invest in apartments any longer, but I get, I'm on different mailing lists. And so I see a lot of the syndications that are happening out there in these apartment buildings. And I'm looking at these yields and they're, they're so squeezed. I mean, cap rates are so compressed. And then I look at like their five and seven and 10 year projections. And they're, they're basically expecting that rent growth is going to continue to go up each and every year talking four or and, and we're already at like peak rental rates. I mean, yeah. So that, that's not, the next bubble is multifamily. We're not making, yeah, we're not making more as, a, as an economy. We're really not. I mean, and so there's a certain threshold of what's affordable to people. And so, yeah. I, and everything that's coming out of the ground are these really high end apartments. I do think that there's going to be some kind of correction in the multifamily space. It's inevitable. Okay. And, Very uh, good. All right. We've we got to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kevin Bupp. Uh, he is an expert on real estate, but particularly mobile home parks. We're going to get into in the next segment. You can find out more about him at his website, kevinbuppbupp.com. He's also got a website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866 472 Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kevin Bupp. Uh, He is an expert on mobile home real estate investing. Uh, His website, kevinbupp.com or mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. Uh, thanks for having me, Jordan. So let's talk about mobile homes now. Uh, you said you heard had this lunch with this guy. What are the attributes of mobile home parks as an investment that make them different and better than single-family homes or multifamily apartment buildings? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple unique features of mobile home parks. I think one of the biggest ones that most people don't know is that it is the only real estate asset class that has a diminishing supply. Now, we look at things like shopping centers. We look at um, office buildings. We look at self-storage facilities, multifamily apartment buildings, uh, you know, nursing homes, everything else. I mean, every type of commercial asset class, they're still building it today. Mobile home parks is not the case. Uh, very few, very few townships, municipalities, local governments will even approve a new mobile home park to be built. They don't like them. They've got a bad reputation, and some deserve a bad reputation, but a lot of them don't. But uh, they, they just have they have a bad name and they have a bad rep, and so they don't get built. Last year there was like four built in the entire United States, yet there was hundreds of them that got shut down. Uh, they get shut down for you know multiple different reasons. It could be a redevelopment type play to where the land's got a higher and better use today. And so a developer comes in and tears it down. Some of this kind of phase out because they're not run properly. Maybe they get shut down by a health department or code officer. Um, but it is the only asset class that has diminishing supply. And so what that means for us, being mobile home park investors, is if we can uh, you know, strategically cherry pick um, mobile home parks that we feel are in great markets that have a very high demand for affordable housing, that we've got these insulated walls and we got this barrier to entry built in because we don't have to worry about a competitor coming down the road, taking that field and converting it into a mobile home park. So um, that's that's one of the big things. Uh, another big thing is that, you know, it's really hard to compare apples to apples, a mobile home park to like a multifamily property. But, you know, they are both multifamily. But, and so if you had the same apartment class and the same mobile home park class asset in the same marketplace and you looked at the two side by side, you can pretty much guarantee like a one to three point uh, yield premium with a mobile home park than you would with that, you know, I say similar, which nothing's really similar to a mobile home park, but similar multifamily property in that same marketplace. And why do you get a higher yield with mobile home parks compared to multifamily? You know, I I think at this point in time, it's starting to change a little bit, but up until recently, it just wasn't as desirable of an asset class. A lot of people just don't understand it. And so I don't think there was much of a buyer's market for those that wanted to get these out. There weren't people pounding down the doors of mobile home park owners saying, I want to buy your property, whereas there is a massive demand for apartment buildings. Everyone understands it. There's there's lots of institutional players in the business. And it's it's just not as, mobile home parks just aren't sophisticated. Now, that's changing a lot. There's multiple REITs in this space. There's lots of institutional investors and there's a lot more education out there on this topic and so that is starting to change don't get me wrong so i can i can even see a shift in the short period of time i've been in this industry from five years ago until today you know what a what a one park might have sold for you know four or five years ago what kind of cap rate versus what it might be selling for today it's definitely getting compressed just like the apartment space did the ones that are available to be purchased are typically held by local families as opposed to REITs or, or bigger institutions? Is that the ones you're, you're aiming to buy? 
You know, we, we buy both because, you know, the interesting thing is that there's a misconception that if it's owned by like a REIT or a, a larger professional investor that there might, you know, there's there's no upside left. There, there's no opportunity there because it's already being run as efficiently as it possibly could be run. And that's actually the, the furthest from the truth. In fact, there's a lot of opportunities that uh, I can't say we bought one recently, but there's a lot of opportunities we look at that um, might make a great opportunity for someone else. Maybe they didn't fit our criteria exactly, but they're they're run by large groups, but maybe it's become like the redhead stepchild. Maybe it's a, a property they've owned for 10 years and their business model's changed a little bit and they're, maybe they're shifting out of that market. And so they haven't paid as much attention to this property as the others. And so there's opportunity even with, you know, larger institutional investors. But with that being said, our, our spe- our focus is working with, we call them mom and pops. They're, a lot of times they're either the original developer of the property or maybe they're like the second line, you know, they're, they're the second owner of the property. But I'd say in, in last year we bought seven parks and of those seven parks, the average age of ownership uh, in, in terms of how long they've owned it, the people we bought it from was about 23 years, uh, some much longer than that. And so those are the typical uh, sellers that we deal with. And so how do you add value to something that's been run for 20 some years uh, do you raise the rents or do you renovate it? What kind of add, added value do you use to con- increase the yield and the value of that property? Yeah. yeah, well, what we found is that a lot of mom and pops, not all of them, but a lot of mom and pops don't tend to treat it like a real business. And um, what I mean by that is it's quite common where we'll buy a property and you know the rents haven't been raised in nine, 10 years. I mean, we had bought a property last year. The rents hadn't been raised in 16 years. There was a lot of, um, you know, there was a, an intimate connection that the owner had with the residents that lived there. They were friends with all of them. And so they didn't want to raise their rents on friends. And so that that's one thing. We'll go in and we'll take a look at the market rents. And is there any upside potential in, in raising the rents up to market and, and more times and not, yes, there is. And so that's one thing we look for. Another is, you know, back when these, a lot of when these parks were built back in the 60s and 70s, when the majority of them were built, your water and sewer costs weren't that high. And so it was very common that uh, a park owner would develop a park and they would essentially include the cost of the water and the sewer. They, they wouldn't bill it back to the residents. They would just say, hey, that's part of your lot rent. You pay your lot rent to live here. And that includes water, sewer, trash. Well, Times have changed a lot, and um, that is one of the you know the more expensive operational sides of a park is the water and sewer expense. And so a lot of times we'll go in, and if um, if the tenants aren't currently paying for their water and sewer usage, we'll go in and we'll put meters each on each one of their lots, and we'll actually build them back for their usage. So that goes d- directly to our bottom line savings. Um, and then just on top of that, just the operational side of things, I, I can tell you that. With mom and pops, they're, a lot of them just don't, you know, they're not really, they don't have a black and white perspective on things in terms of like rent's due on the first, it's late on the sixth, like this is the business I'm running here, you have to pay or you, have, you can't stay, like you have to leave. And so we just really come in and we treat it like a business. We treat it like a larger operator would an apartment complex and uh, we just put rules in place and uh, we enforce them. And so lots of times we can really cut back on uh, the operational inefficiencies, we can raise rents. And uh, we can, you know, build back for, you know, utility usage and just add a ton of value. So there's multiple different ways that we can do that. I mean, one thing of, thinks of the population living in mobile home parks as kind of low income or, you know, unemployed or not doing that well. How are they able to handle rent increases and now having to pay for utilities that have to pay before? Do you get a lot of a churn when you start raising rates and doing the things you just mentioned? You know, it's interesting because uh, we've never lost one tenant from raising rents. Now, I will say that when we go into a market, we, we do a, a very detailed market analysis. So we'll never go in and raise rents above the, what the market can bear. And so if we go in and there's 10 other mobile home parks in that marketplace and the average, let's say, 
monthly lot rent for nine of the other parks is three hundred dollars. Um, we come in and ours is at two twenty five. We know that the threshold in that market's probably right around the three hundred dollar mark. So we would never go in and raise to three fifty. We would never push the market, but we will definitely bring it up to what the market can, you know, what the market's currently at. Now, um, if that park we were buying was already at the three hundred, we wouldn't raise rents. We just put in a, you know, we'd go in and we'd actually put in a rent increase each and every year by a couple percent and just keep it very minimal. So we're not really we're not we're not pushing the rents to a, a to a place that be, would become or considered unaffordable in that particular market. Um, in fact, a lot of tenants, what we found is that a majority of them, they realize like they might a couple might moan and complain a little bit, but they really they're they're not dumb. Everyone's got common sense to a certain extent, and they know that they've got a good deal. They know that their rent hasn't been raised in 16 years, and they know that their friends live in the other mobile home parks around town. You know, because birds of a feather flock together, they know that their friends pay $75 more each month. And they know that if they were to leave there and go somewhere else, there's going to be no monetary gain for them doing that. And so although they, they might moan and groan and complain a little bit, they know they've got a really good deal. And they just really have had a gift for a long time because they haven't had a rent increase. So we've never lost one person from doing a rent increase like that. Talk about the population that is living. This is rentals. They're never owning everything. They're only renting, Correct. Talk, no. talk about the population. Well, they, they rent the land. They rent the land and they own the home. I see. Okay. So talk about the population that does it. These are people who can't afford traditional homes and don't want to rent uh, an apartment building. Is that right? So kind of tell not me a little bit about the demographics of not necessarily pro- probably the um, the park the types of parks we own. Yes, but there's different grades of parks. I mean, like I live in Florida and we've got some parks that are country club parks. I mean, they're they've got you know full time activity directors. They've got three swimming pools. They've got you know buses that come and take the uh, the older folks to the shopping mall each and every day or on bus trips. I can tell you that in those types of parks, which are, I mean, they're pretty rampant down here in Florida. I bet you a lot of those residents probably downsized from a from a stick boat home at some. Maybe they moved down from up north and they they moved down here to retire, and they more moved there for the community aspect. They moved there for the activities and the the retirement living aspect of it. So. That's one type of park. Our types of parks are more, we, we kind of call ourselves, we provide clean, safe, and quiet, affordable housing. And so um, the type of people that live in our mobile home parks are just good, hardworking people. You know, they're, you know, they make the $10, $12, $15 an hour. They work factory jobs. They work as managers at fast food restaurants, things of that nature. So, um, you know, with that being said, it's just, it, it's a completely different type of different, completely different type of demographic. And, uh, um, you know, we we really look to, to to provide affordable housing to those that they can't afford the stick bill, but they also they don't want to live in a really low end apartment building. That's kind of what our competition is. Our biggest competition is like a C minus or like a D class apartment building. So that's who we're basically providing housing to. They don't want to live in a place where there's a a tenant above, below, and side by side, and probably drug activity going. They want to more they want to live more of a community. They want to have Christmas lights outside and want to put a wreath on their front door. And they want a place where the kids can kind of run around the yard. That's the type of housing we provide. You think of those people have been the ones who have been hurt the most in this economy, people with factory jobs and minimum wage or a little bit more. You know, I mean, you think those are the people who have been the most vulnerable in this economy. Uh, so it doesn't sound like a particularly solid, safe kind of investment if well, they could lose well, here, their job and so on. Well, here's the thing. I mean, here, here's how I look at it is uh, – I'll start. I kind of have like this scale that I go down. If you, you if you live in an A class apartment building you, and you can't afford that, you move to a B class. If you live in a B class, you can't afford that, you move to a C class. You can't afford a C class, 
then your option is pretty much either a mobile home park, at least the type of parks we have, which are good. They're, they're very clean. They're safe. You know, we have, we don't allow, you know, riffraff in or anything like that. But, and so if you can't afford that C-class apartment building, you move in a D-class, which a D-class I would consider to be a war zone. Like you better be packing heat if you're going to go walk around at nighttime. In fact, you probably only want to come out at night. And so your option is to live there or to live in a mobile home community. But if you can't afford to live in a mobile home community, or that D-class, really bad area of town where that apartment complex is, what, what's your next option after that point in time? There really is nowhere else to go. I mean, you're essentially homeless at that point in time. So th- there's a, I feel like there's a there's an urgency for those that are living in communities. I mean, number one, they own their own home, so they have something to lose. They have skin in the game because they own their own trailer. And so they've, mm-hmm. they've, they've got skin there and, and they can't just easily move up move their trailer move it somewhere else they can't just go take it move them to a plot of land it costs three four thousand dollars to move one of those homes and so yeah. um a lot of times they'll do anything in their power to not lose that home whereas an apartment building you could pack up your backpack you know throw your mattress out the window put it in a moving truck and you're gone it, it doesn't really work the same in a mobile home park so we actually find that our turnover rate is very minimal in fact i i'll give you an example um of a park that that we've owned now i guess for about a year we bought it. it was it was struggling pretty bad it, more so from the operational side of things this the manager or the previous owners weren't doing a great job of collections they weren't enforcing community rules this that or the other we actually thought this one going into we thought we would have some turn just because they weren't even forcing some people were you know four or five six months behind in rent i mean it was ridiculous that they were still living there and uh but most of them own their own home see that's a catch most of them own their own home there was only like six that didn't own their own home and so they had skin in the game their monthly lot rent in this park was 175 when we took it over. We bumped it to 240, which was still $10 below what the market was. The market's really 250. We kept it slightly below, and our park's probably the nicest in that area. We didn't lose one person, and when we went to all those people that were really struggling and far behind, they basically said, "Look, you need to figure out one way or another. We'll work with you a little bit. You need to figure out how to get us the money that you owe." Or else yeah, you're well, going to lose your home. And you'd be surprised. We didn't lose one person in that community. Every good. single person made up their payments. So in the uh, apartment complex, we probably would have lost a few people. They would have probably just packed up and left. All right. Very good. We're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kevin Bupp. Uh, he is an expert on mobile home parks and real estate particularly. A uh, website for him would be kevinbupp.com. He also has mobilehomeparkacademy.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kevin Bupp. He's an expert on real estate investing and particularly mobile home park real estate investing. His website, kevinbupp.com or also mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. Thank you, Jordan. So, so we kind of looked at it from the tenant point of view. Now let's look at it from the investor point of view. So what kind of returns can investors expect uh, if they buy mobile home parks uh, on the, their own? And then we're going to get to a fund you have. But if they don't go through the fund and they do this right, what kind of returns can investors expect? Yeah, obviously every investor's got a different uh, investment parameters that they go after, right? I mean, so there's different classes of parks. There's really high-grade parks that might sell at a lower cap rate, and there's really low-end parks that might sell at a higher cap rate and give you higher returns. And so I can tell you from our experience, at least the types of parks we go after, we go after parks that are in great markets, that are you know great school districts, uh, where there's a high demand for affordable housing. So we're very strategic in the markets we buy in, and we also buy parks that they're not war zones, they're not full of criminals or anything like that. Now, with that being said, I can tell you that our criteria, which again, some others might have a little bit more lenient criteria, but we want to know, um, every park that we buy, we want to know that within year one, um, with whatever upside might be there that we're going to achieve in year one, we want to know that we can get to about an 18% or higher cash on cash return. Um, and so that's really what, what our target is. Um, you know, I know a lot of investors that they're okay with a 10% return, but we're really shooting for about an 18% at a minimum. And, uh, and that's with all the, from rents or is that from appreciation of the property? No, no, no. That, that, not including appreciation. No, that, that, that is not an IRR. That does not include principal reductions or appreciations or anything like that or assuming a liquidity event. That is a strict cash on cash returns, annualized cash on cash returns. So, and we've had, and we have many parts that, so that, high, that. The reason it's so high is you're buying it cheaper and you're able to raise rents and that has a big impact on the return. Is that the reason? Yeah, you got I mean, just a lot of parks that we buy have different struggles, meaning just a lot of operational struggles. Maybe not just even rents haven't been raised. That's just one side of it. But a lot of them have operational struggles where we can look at them, we can see what's broken and we can fix it quite quickly. And, you know, and we're only buying it on real income. So when we buy the park, we're buying it on like how it's operating for that current owner. We're not buying on pro formas or projections or anything like that. And uh, we're only buying on exactly how it's running today, knowing that there's pieces that are broken and we can fix it quite quickly. And so th- that's why. I mean, it's it's just it's more common than not being that there's so many mom and pops running these types of uh, investments. They're just not being run as a professional like you or I would run them. And so there's lots of broken pieces. It's not just one or two. There's multiple broken pieces. We know how to identify those, which allows us to basically um, you know, achieve these high returns. Now, and we look at a lot of parks that they would never reach that type of return. And we just don't buy them. But we are looking for parks that are broken, but not too broken that we can't you know, mend them back together fairly quickly. And uh, we've done quite well with that model. So you can do it individually, but now you're coming out with a fund. Uh, which is called the Sunrise Capital Investors Fund that will allow the average individual to get those kind of returns. So explain how this fund is going to work, what kind of returns, what are the minimum investment, what's the holding period. So tell me a little bit about this fund that you have coming up. Sure, sure. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it is going to be, it's a $5 million fund, so it's fairly small. Uh, in that fund, we plan to, uh, to place approximately eight to nine mobile home parks, and that's just based on our average acquisition size using leverage. And uh, the fund is structured uh, as a 50-50 split between general partners and limited partners. And we also pay an 8% preferred return to our limited partners. 
And um, in terms of the overall uh, outlook of the fund itself, it is a very long-term fund. We are not a three to five-year horizon type investor. Um, a lot of apartments, you know, typically investor likes to get in, add value to it, and then exit out of it in a three to five-year span. We're the complete opposite. Um, we're very long-term. In fact, we tell our investors, if you don't have an interest in, in achieving cash flows for you know, about 10 years, that's kind of our number that we like to really look at. In fact, we don't even have an interest in necessarily selling then, but if you're not interested in locking up your money for 10 years, then we're not a good fit for you. So it really is a long-term horizon type fund. Um, and then the projected, I, and I say projected because there's no guarantees or anything like that. And I could tell you that our parks are performing better than this number, but our projected returns for our limited partners, including the um, including the uh, the equity splits and the uh, the preferred returns is going to be in the 15, 16% range. And, uh, but I could tell you that the parks that we own today, if they were in that fund, it would be much higher than that. So 15 or 16 total, you're getting 8% from rentals yeah. and the other 8% or so from cash flow. From rental increases, basically, right? Is there yeah, from cash flow, right. Efficiencies. That, correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you'll be getting monthly checks or quarterly checks? How, how would people get the cash flow from Yeah, we, we, we do it quarterly. That's correct. Yep. And the minimum investment is $100,000. And we have it, it is set up to where we only can accept accredited investors. And so for those that don't know what a, a credited or classification of an accredited investor would be, it's an, an individual that makes uh, $200,000 a year of, uh, of individual income or a couple that makes $300,000 a year or has a net worth excluding their primary residence of $1 million. And so we, we can only allow or accept the credit investors into the fund. And can you put this inside an IRA? You sure can. Mm-hmm. As a, it has to be a self-directed IRA of some kind. Yeah, yes, it does. Uh-huh. Uh, but I mean, it's basically for people who want income. And then prospectively, say they hold it for 10 years. Um, at that point, would there be some kind of a liquidity event? You'd be selling all the parks in there? Or how could people well, get out, even if they keep the 10-year hold? Well, I can tell you that our main objective is to have all the investors' initial capital back to them as fast as possible. So our, our, our objective is to get their initial capital back to them. Now, after that point in time, we, we do not have a, a guaranteed liquidity event, meaning like an actual sale at the end of 10 years. But in order to achieve, in order to get all their capital back to them within that period of time, it'll either come from excess cash flow or it'll be from a, a refinance, that, that type of event. But um, you know, in our fund, we do not have it written to where we have to dissolve the company at the end of 10 years. And so what would happen is they would get all their capital back. They would have all their initial investment capital back, but then they would still maintain that 50-50 cash flow split. And so they would still be a 50% limited partner. Um, they do have the right to share or they have uh, the ability to sell their shares of the company. Um, there's other some there's some other particulars in there as well to where they can actually get some of their capital back out or sell their shares off or um, sell them back to the company itself, to the general partner. So there's other ways for them to get their capital out. But um, really for that first 10 years, not saying that they're stuck in the ride, but if they're not interested in long-term type investment, then, um, then it probably isn't a good fit for them. But most of our investors that we've worked with in the past, uh, we've been doing this for five years. But prior to that, um, you know, as I explained earlier in the show, I've owned lots of other types of investments. So we've got some investors that have been, you know, have, have had money with us for a number of years in different types of projects. And even investors today that uh, we've done a lot of one-off deals or mobile home parks with other investors. I kind of just kind of pre-warn them like, hey, I'm a long-term guy. This is our, our objective is to hold for a long time because they're not making these parks anymore. And so when we find really good opportunities in parks that are in great markets, our idea is that if we add a lot of value to them, what's the point of selling if they produce such a great cash flow? Because then we got to go turn around and replace that, that, that income, right? We have to go replace that investment. And it's really difficult. It's getting more and more difficult in this space. And so we kind of look at it as though we trade pick the best and we hold on to them for long term. And so most of our investors are really happy with that. In fact, 
that's probably the most difficult discussion I've ever had with an investor, telling them that they're getting all their money back, <laughs> and I don't have anywhere else to put it. I see. Um, so it's a $5 million fund. Is there going to be a lot of leverage involved borrowing to be able to buy these uh, eight or nine parks? What are yeah, the, the average, I'd say the average leverage we put in place is about 70%. That's, that's kind of the norm. So what? So, I mean, so let, let's say the economy were to turn down again. You, you're saying this would be a different experience in this than what you experienced in Southwest Florida in 2007, 2008, where people were abandoning their homes. You're saying that people don't abandon mobile home parks. I can tell you that of all the commercial asset classes, mobile home parks had the lowest default rate between 2007 and 2011. Of all commercial loans, all the other different types of real estate, they had the lowest default rate. U.S. Bank came out of that statistic. So um, that makes me feel pretty good. And again, th- there's really not many other places for the people that live in these parks. If, if they can't afford to live there, they own their home and they're paying 250 or $300 lot rent. There was literally nowhere else for them to go. And so, yes, there is the risk of losing tenants if the economy takes a turn. But for someone that makes eight or nine or ten dollars an hour, which is, I mean, if you had a, a working couple that lives in one of these homes and they're just making minimum wage, if they were just making minimum wage between the two of them, they would be able to afford to live in a community in one of our communities. So it's not hard, you know. It's it's hard, I guess, for some people to scrape together a couple hundred bucks a month. But if it really came down to it, and it, there's not many other options for them at that point in time, a lot of people can figure out how to come up or how to scratch together three hundred dollars a month. And so, I'm not too concerned. Um, I've interviewed a lot of people that have been in this industry um, prior to me getting into it. They've gone through a couple cycles and um, that have owned other types of real estate as well. They've always had the feedback of my mobile home parks performed better than any of the other investments I had during the downturn of X years. And, they're kind uh, of recession so, resistant. Is what you're saying. Yeah. I, so, I, I mean, nothing's re- recession resistant, but I mean, I guess in my mind, they're about as recession resistant as anything I've ever seen. And I've owned multiple different types of commercial real estate and residential real estate. So, so what this is a way to do it is through this fund. If people want to find out more, is there a website or a phone number? Where should they go to find out about the Sunrise Capital Investors yeah, Fund? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. And uh, on that website, they'll actually have access to our PPM documents and, and the offering docs and can read through about it and see if it might be a good fit for them. If they have an interest, there's a contact us page on there and um, they can go schedule a time to jump on the phone with myself or one of our other partners and we can talk a little bit more about it. So it would be done direct with you. It would not be done through their own financial planner or RIA or some kind of financial advisor they might already have. No, correct? yes, it would be done directly with us, correct. Uh-huh, okay. Very good. All right, so we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kevin Bupp. As you can see, he's an expert on real estate and investing in general and specifically mobile home parks. Uh, you can find out more at his website, kevinbupp.com or also mobilehomeparkacademy.com. The fund we just mentioned, which is a $5 million fund uh, for accredited investors, which allows you to play this mobile home park industry, is sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America. 
is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Kevin Bupp, is an expert on mobile home parks and investing in them. The website for him is mobilehomeparkacademy.com or kevinbupp.com. Welcome back to the show, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Jordan. So what can people find at mobilehomeparkacademy.com? Yeah, so at mobilehomeparkacademy.com, first and foremost, you can find uh, access to our, our weekly podcast that we do. Um, we started a, a podcast about seven months ago, back in uh, June 2016, uh, to where myself and one of my other uh, partners, one of the other principals of our company, we basically get on each and every week and talk Everything and anything about mobile home park investing. You know, we cover the industry as a whole. We cover case studies of parks that we've e- either recently purchased or um, are, are looking at purchasing. Um, we interview other mobile home park operators about their business, how they got into it, the struggles that they've had, unique challenges they faced. And so they can listen to all those shows there. And then we also have an educa- educational component of our, of, our, um, of our website there. And we, we started this program about a year and a half ago to where we help others that have an interest getting into this business, not just in a, a passive uh, capacity like our fund offers, but more of an active role. Someone that will actually wants to get out there, roll up their sleeves and learn how to acquire and operate mobile home parks. And so we offer an educational platform there where they can learn, again, everything and anything uh, with regards to owning and operating your very own mobile home park. Aren't you kind of teaching your competition to bid against you for mobile home parks? Why do you want to do that? You know, I I just, I don't really have a scarcity mentality when it comes to things like that. And in fact, um, I find that it's complete opposite, Jordan. I find that you help enough others achieve success in whatever in life they want to achieve success in, and it will come back to you 10 times. I mean, one of the parks we purchased last year was a park that we never would have purchased on our own. We wouldn't have actually run across it. It wasn't a market we were looking, and it came because I met someone through my podcast. They came to us. They were looking for partners. They were new. They didn't have the experience of doing it on their own. We put some capital in the deal with them, and we became an operational partner in that. And so we acquired that park because we met them or because we actually gave the education out and they found us through our educational portal. And so I feel like there's a lot of other opportunities that have come our way because of that. And so I'm just, I've got the mindset of abundance. Like you just, you you give, 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 
and it will come back tenfold. So that's just that's kind of how I've always lived, and I really have never had that scarcity mentality. So for somebody who wants to get into buying parks themselves, as opposed to doing it through your fund, uh, what are some things that they should be careful? Of? What's the amount of money they need? What kind of time do they have to hire a manager? Kind of what do they need to do to make it successful? Yeah, I mean, so obviously the amount of money that they have is is a big determination of how large or, or how expensive of a property they can buy. You know, I would just assume that you're going to have to put anywhere between 25 and 30% down, whether the owner's financing it or you're getting bank financing either way. Just assume that you're going to put that much down. And so, you know, kind of gauge on what size parks you're looking at uh, based on how much, you know, how much money you have available to put into a deal. But uh, on top of that, uh, you know, there, there's definitely some pitfalls in this business uh, that I, I learned about fairly fairly quickly. Th- thankfully, I had a, a couple mentors in this business that kind of redirected me a- away from some of those very expensive pitfalls. But there are a lot of parks out there that are on private utilities, meaning like they're they're not necessarily within city connections. And so they might be on septic systems or wells. And um, that can those, those things can be major, major money pitfalls um, for the wrong operator that doesn't know what they're doing or doesn't know how to identify potential underlying problems. So those are some big things to look out for. Um, you also just want to buy, you know, make sure that you're buying the right park. You're not buying, you're not walking into something that, oh, this thing looks like it's got a lot of upside potential and it's got some great opportunity, but you're literally buying a park that has got the worst reputation in the marketplace. And on top of that, it's in a very bad neighborhood. You know, you can change a park if it's in a good neighborhood, like if it's got a bad reputation, but it's surrounded by good you can kind of bring it back to life. But if you buy a mobile home park that's in a very bad neighborhood and the park's bad itself, you're never going to turn it into a great community if it's surrounded by bad. And so I see a lot of investors make that mistake as well. So lots of things like that that they have to just be, really be really be conscious of, make sure they're not going to get into the wrong investment. I mean, I, I tell people that really it's the market first. Don't even think about mobile home parks. You want to research markets, find markets you like because there's a lot of job growth, because there's a demand for affordable housing, there's good school districts, and then you look for the parks. Once you find the market, then you look for the park because you really want to find a park in a market that's got a high barrier to entry and it's got a very high demand for affordable housing. That is the perfect location to own a mobile home park. What what is the typical price range to buy a park? If they're going to put down 20, 25%. What are you talking about as far as buying a park? Meeting all the criteria you just mentioned. Yeah, you know, I, I'd say our average price, I'll just give you what our average price point is. It's about a million dollars. That, that That's, you know, we've bought parks that are two and a half million. We've bought some parks that are in like the five or $600,000 range. Um, but the average, if I looked across the board of what we own today, it's about a million dollars. I mean, and but that would include how, any, how many... Uh, mobile homes on a million dollar park, just roughly. Our criteria, our criteria uh, we're not really interested in anything less than 50 spaces in size. And so um, that in one market could be a $2 million park and another it could be a $700,000 park. It just really depends on the market and uh, how expensive of an area it is. And, you know, for instance, we own a park in Virginia. Uh, that park today, that's a 52 space park, probably about worth about $2 million. Whereas we own another 52 space park in Fayetteville, North Carolina. That one's probably worth about $1 million. You know, and really, they're they're the same size parks, very similar infrastructure. It's just that Virginia is a much more expensive area than Fayetteville, North Carolina is. And is it relatively easy to get bank financing to buy a mobile home park today? Relatively easy. I don't know if I use that terminology. Um, what we found is that if the park has been run somewhat properly, meaning like books have been maintained, which that's actually one of the big challenges. A lot of mom and pops are horrible bookkeepers. And so, you know, either they have handwritten ledgers or no ledgers at all. You know, they, they literally, it's like an ATM business to them where they don't keep books whatsoever. That makes it challenging. On top of that, um, 
a lot of times what I find is that banks either get it or they don't. So either they're, they can get comfortable with the idea of a mobile home park or maybe they've even lent on it before to where they're like, okay, yeah, we'll take a look at that deal or it's complete opposite. I mean, it's, it's literally one side or the other of the equation. And, you know, you go in, they'll say, absolutely not, Kevin. We'll never lend on a mobile home park. Get out of here. And so, um, honestly, we've, we've not done a few deals because they happen to be in markets that maybe we had three or four banks that uh, were local banks that we had the ability to get financing from. Like they were our, our only options, really, because the, the deal was kind of smaller. And so it wasn't a big enough loan amount to go with like a national lender. And so we had to really stick with the local banks. And all the banks said no. And then we had to back out of the deal because there was no financing available. And so and then we've gone to other small markets where we've had banks fighting over the deal. It just, it just really depends um, what their what their comfort level is with mobile home parks in general. And once one buys a mobile home park uh, and say you're not living in that community, do you have to hire a professional management firm to uh, stay on top of it? You know, it's, it's one thing that's interesting about the mobile home park space is like, you know, in apartments, you, you own a large apartment complex, you hire a third, par- third party property management company. That, that is that business. Like that's the norm in that business. Well, in mobile home parks, it's a complete opposite. There are some third party property management companies but there's not, there's no good ones. There's no national companies out there. There might be a few mom and pop management companies here and there that say they manage mobile home parks, but it's not the norm. None of the big professional operators outsource the third part, third property, uh, third party property management. They all have an in, inside infrastructure built for property management. So that's exactly what we do. So every single park that we own, every community that we own, there is an on-site manager that lives within that park. It's a requirement that they live with inside that park. And so when we purchase a mobile home park. If we have to get rid of the management that's there, a lot of times that is the problem. We either look inside the park first and see if there's any other responsible parties that might make a good manager. So we'll look for someone that's got a pride of ownership in their home. And then if they do, we'll kind of interview them to see if they've got basic internet or basic computer skills, basic bookkeeping skills, can communicate well. Because it's not a really difficult job. It just takes someone that's somewhat organized and professional. If we can't find someone within the park, then we'll hire from the outside and make them move in. We'll give them free housing. We'll pay them a monthly salary as well as you know, leasing commissions and such. So in about two minutes we have left, just kind of summarize why it makes sense for people to invest in mobile home parks, something they may not have considered before. Yeah, I think we, we hit on one of the big things is that they're not building them anymore. So, I mean, there's a diminishing supply there, and it's also a – it's still a very fragmented industry uh, as it pertains to commercial real estate. Uh, lots of other uh, – pretty much every other asset class you could think of, it's, it's, it's very pulled together. There's major professional operators in place, and a majority of the marketplace are professionals. And so in this case, there's a lot of mom and pops. Still about 50% or so of the parks in the United States are still owned by either the original owner or maybe the second line that purchased it, but it's still a mom and pop type owner. And so it's still very fragmented, and that – that allows for great opportunities for guys like you and us that are looking to go in and looking to buy something that's got a ton of upside potential. And so um, I think there's a lot of money to make a mobile home park still. And I think that's starting to go away as these owners age out of these assets and people like you and I buy them, but there's still a lot of opportunity today. And that's why I think people should get into this business. Again, the yields are in the 18, 15 to 18% range is what you're talking about. The, the parks we buy, yes. I mean, that, that's just our criteria. I mean, we, we won't buy something unless we can you know, get close to 18% year one and know that we can push it over 20% in year two to three. That, I mean, that, that's pretty much what we look for. And, and we've doubled and tripled that in some of the parks. I, I don't even want to mention it because there's a couple anomalies in there to where we're, we're experiencing 30, 40, 50% annualized cash on cash returns, not counting principal reductions, liquidity events, or anything as such. Yeah, well, it's pretty attractive in a world where you get pretty low interest rates on bonds and CDs and money market yeah. funds. These days. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Kevin Bupp, 
Uh, he is an expert on, as you can tell, uh, mobile home parks, uh, real estate. Uh, he has a fund coming out, which is called Sunrise Capital Investors, which you can find out about at sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. You can also go to his website, kevinbupp.com, and his podcast about mobile home investing is at mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Kevin. Jordan, thanks for having me. And we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.